So, we are quite a few weeks, even months into a sermon series that we started early December in Advent, and it's on kingship. It's, it's walking through First and Second Samuel, not looking at every passage, but walking through it in order and looking at really the kingship of David, Saul first and then David, and how God provides his people a king in David that would eventually, as we see, come to fruition in this text, at least through God's word. David is now king. He's been on the run for a long time. The kingship was promised to him 20 years plus before he actually became king. And then he's king now, and, and he has been given a, a measure of a modicum of peace, more than a modicum. He's been given substantial peace. And he says in this passage, I have a house. It's time to build you a house, God. And so through David, though, we see this promise of a king that will come from David's seed from his loin, who will be his actual descendant, his son, <clears throat> as the scriptures say, whose, whose rule and reign will not end. And, uh, and part of the, I mean, Jesus is that, just sort of spoiler alert, right? We'll get there. He is that son through, through David, through Solomon. But we, just part of the proof of the fact that God's word stands is that, you know, you probably can't name another ancient Near Eastern king. And when you look, when you think about it, I mean, he had, David had rest from his enemies all around, but he was a king of a small fiefdom, a small kingdom 3,000 years ago, but we're still talking, still, people are still naming their kids after King David today by the thousands. And so through his greater son, David, uh, Jesus, we still know about David and his reign has indeed um, grown over pretty much every part of the globe through Christ and um, and it continues to grow until Christ returns. And so we're gonna dive into that just for a few minutes today. So at the beginning of the passage, um, verses one through three, you see, like I said, David has come to a place for the first time in Samuel where he has a measure of peace. And he is reigning and he has a house, a nice palace that's been built for him. And he looks around and he says, God, you've, you've, You've done this for me. Let me do something for you. It's, it's, it's you time, you know? And so what does he do? He goes to Nathan, the priest, the pastor, as it were, and he says, hey, Nathan, I have this idea. Uh, I know you're running a capital campaign, and I want to write this massive check. What do you think to the church? And Nathan says what any pastor probably would say, which is, he doesn't even say, let me go pray about it. He just says, the Lord is with you, sir. <laughs> do all that is in your heart, Right? But what happens? The scene shifts. There's a strong adversative conjunction there in verse four that begins the verse. But, but that same night, God comes to Nathan and he says, you tell David, you tell David, will you build me a house? He says, that's not, that's not the way I work. It's not the way I've ever worked with your forefathers. It's not the way I work now and it's not the way I will work. Okay, God owes us nothing. God does everything and God gives all, okay? The points are not on, on, your, um, on the TV as they normally are, so if you're a note taker, let's just start with God owes us nothing. It's sort of something you have to imply from this text, but David could have well been on the verge of thinking, let me do something for you, God. And from that, kind of thinking, okay, now, now we're even Stevens or, and I don't wanna put this on David and get to, get to heaven one day and have him be like, man, you misrepresented me, sir. 
Um, David was a man after God's own heart, but you can kind of see in this text, especially through the way God comes back to him through Nathan and says, that's not the way it works. I'm in no one's debt and you don't do things for me to curry favor so that I pour out my favor upon you, unasked for, undeserved, completely, okay? Um, So there's a danger in giving to God, which is what David is prepping to do here, that we we can think that he owes us in some way, or we can think in giving a big gift to him in whatever fashion, time, skills, a vocation. If I'm a pastor, Lord, I've given you this, you know, you know, or, or I've, I've served in my marriage, why don't I have a good marriage? Or I've given, written a big check to the church, I ought to have some form of control. Um, there's a danger in giving to God that we can begin to think, we probably will never say it, we can, but the, the lie can begin to sneak in that now God owes me. And that really takes asking the Holy Spirit to come in and say, be on, like, help me to be honest, search my heart and see if that is in me at all. And I've had it in me before, probably way, way more than I know. So you'll see this in the church a fair amount. You'll have a founding member. Um, you'll have a member that comes in and writes a big check. So we had, um, we had two, and a half, two plus years ago, a founding member of this church. He, uh, he just said, look, I've, I've just sold a business and I wanna give you um, $50,000. And to us, I mean, that's a big amount to anyone, right? But to a, a fledgling church, that, that's huge. And he, and he followed that quickly by saying, because I immediately got nervous because I'm aware of this syndrome. I'm aware of this syndrome, right? You need to be careful. Um, if someone thinks that they can write a check and then they can start calling shots early on, okay? That's not the way God works. not the way the church ought to work. It is the way it works, unfortunately, often. And he said, I'm not trying to curry favor. Followed that immediately with that phrase. And I so appreciated that. And I kept an eye on sort of the way that he behaved and interacted. He never asked a single thing. He never exerted any soft pressure. And that is godliness, but that is not the way that it happens a lot. Um, a lot of times you'll have an elder board, a session of elders that govern a church, make decisions for the church. They're all pastors. And a lot of times, a lot of times, it's simply the guy, the men who make a lot of money. Now, this is a bit of a caricature, but it's unfortunately too true in, in a lot of churches. Um, they make a lot of money. They write big checks and there's nothing wrong with making a lot of money and there's nothing wrong with writing big checks. That's a form of worship. But it can so easily become tantamount to godliness in our minds. And we can so easily, if we're writing those checks, begin to think, okay, now I have, I deserve some sort of control and that there's a sense in which God owes me. And we can do this in a thousand different ways, but rather than looking for you know, elders who write big checks, we ought to be looking for elders who walk humbly with God, who are gentle, who are men of prayer and love and full of the spirit and full of faith. Um, and generous, yes, as well. Um, and so also as far as to kind of get closer to home with, with someone like me, with a pastor, you hear about in the, in, the, in the preaching and pastoral world, you'll hear about golden handcuffs or a golden muzzle where there's a sense in which a preacher's kind of been bought. And again, a preacher probably won't admit this to himself, but hopefully he'll have people around him that are, love him enough and love the church enough to say, hey, something's, Something stinks because you'll start to preach softer messages because you don't want to offend the big givers, okay? And you're not preaching the unvarnished word of God and, and that's a golden handcuff. And, um, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a sense in which the big givers have, have a feel that they are controlling things, um, even if they're not meaning to. And so that's just, unfortunately, because of our sin bent, it's the way that things can work. We give to God, whether it's money, time, obedience, behavior, and we begin to think, okay, God owes me. Whether it's a good life, 
when, when tragedy strikes and, hey, Lord, I've given you my time. I've given you my profession. I've given you my life. I've, I've sacrificed so much. I've written this check and that check, and, and I tithe or I overtithe. Um, and, again, we can, we can begin to think that. Tim Keller says he, he would hear in his counseling a fair amount, yeah, I tried Christianity, and it didn't work for me. What? Okay, pause. What kind of misconception does that unveil? Um, it, sort of, it sort of tells on the fact that it's like we look at Christianity as something, I give God something and then he gives me back sort of more of what I'm looking for. And that's not, that's not the way that it works. That's, God's kind of giving us a window into the, into the fact that that's not at all the way it works. In fact, Christianity is completely founded on the idea that we can't give to God anything of true worth when it comes to matters that matter most, matters of salvation, matters of life and death, matters of eternity. God gives all. We are only debtors. Um, and so a lot of times when tragedy strikes in our life in whatever form or fashion, we will find sort of this idea rising up in us that, hey, it's raising its ugly head. I didn't know it was there, but I did feel like from the way I was living or trying to live or what I was doing that God owed me something. And that's religion, and that God is just eviscerating that here in this text with David and, and for us. Um, there's a psalm, Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite psalms. And uh, the, the, the author is just sort of like John and Hillary were here. He's, he's brutally honest with himself and with his audience, and he writes down this problem. He says, look, I got to the place where I basically felt like God owed me because of the way that I was living. I was trying to live for him and it wasn't paying off. And I was going through so much pain and suffering and I was looking around at fat cats who were fat and happy and just bringing in the money and they didn't, I mean, they didn't care about God at all, godless. Um, so why am, I, why am I even doing this? So that's that kind of mentality. That's that kind of mentality. And, um, and then it says he changed when he went into the sanctuary and he lifted up his eyes and he saw the whole picture of eternity, that we are eternal creatures and that what we all deserve is to head to hell under the just wrath of God Almighty. What we get through sacrifice, what we get through Christ is something very different. Um, so that changed his perspective. Um, so if we have this mentality, it's nothing, it's nothing more than just every other religion out there. And there are a million, as many variations as there are religions, but they all essentially are through doing a bunch of good things, through obeying rules and regulations, through worshiping God in this and that way, climbing a ladder, as it were, to get to him or to get to whatever it is, whether it's nirvana or gods or God. Um, but in the Judeo-Christian faith alone revealed in the word and revealed here in particular, um, we see that it's the opposite of that, that God says to us, you can do nothing, you can give nothing that I need or want or that's of value to me because of your brokenness. And so what I'm going to do is I'm gonna come down to you. I'm gonna give you all at ultimate cost to myself. And that's exactly um, what we see here, what God promises to do through David here. And David just, we didn't read the last half of this chapter, but he just finishes with this prayer of worship saying, who am I? The answer is you're no one, Dave. That's our answer. We're no one. It's not because of any virtue in us. It's through, it's through God and his goodness and his love and his free choice to lavish his love upon us in Christ. Um, so God owes us nothing, point one, point two. If you're taking notes, God does everything. So God owes us nothing, but he does everything. And that's really the heartbeat and the torso uh, of this text. Um, when it comes to everything else in life, we earn. And you guys are 
overachievers. You're, you excel uh, in almost everything you do. You're hard workers. You're gifted. You're, a, lot of, a lot of us are privileged. I am. Some of you came up from nothing, um, and that's even more impressive. But we are in a world where if you want something, you have to earn it. And Houston is a, that's one of the best things about Houston. It's a city of entrepreneurship, and there isn't a lot. It's pretty flat socially. There's not a lot of social hierarchy. And so if you want something, you're welcome to the game. Just get after it. And, and it's, the, it's yours for the taking. Um, but what we see here is that when it comes to salvation, so that attunes us to the idea, programs us to thinking when we come to salvation, we do it almost without thinking. When it comes to God, when it comes to the things of God, we kind of operate in the same way. Whether or not we realize it as many times as we hear the gospel, which is one of the reasons we have to hear the gospel over and over again, which is we, when it comes to matters of salvation, we have, listen, nothing to offer. This is one of the things that God is telling David. Will you really build me a house? No, that is not the way it works. I know you're a king now, but I took you from following sheep. It's, like, it's basically like I took you from being a garbage man. That's a noble profession, by the way. I'm not digging on that, but it wasn't, it wasn't esteemed at all. I took you from falling behind a garbage truck from falling behind sheep and poking them in the butt. It's basically what God says. To now, people are following after you, my people, and you are at the helm, and I've given you all things because of what I've done for you. Don't forget that. And I'm gonna bless you so much more than this. Will you be, build me a house? No, no, I'm gonna build you a house, not a structure, a dynasty that will last forever. In 3,000 years, this goofball in Houston is gonna be preaching about you. And no one else in the room is gonna know anything about any other ancient Near Eastern king, but they will be talking about you because of the way I'm gonna establish your house through someone that comes from your loins. So when it comes to God, we are in salvation. We can't offer anything, and in fact, we are bankrupt. We do less than nothing. When we try to bring stuff to get to him on our own merit, we offend him because of what he's done for us in Christ. So will you be, build me a house? Will I owe you? No, that is not, that is not the way that it works. Um, we forget this a lot of times, again, just because we tend to go back, we tend to, tend to sort of be pulled back into the way that everything else works and because of our broken sin nature, right? We forget, um, even if we've been remade in Christ, that broken sin nature, it, it's not completely eviscerated until the day we breathe our last. So it's still there knocking at the door. We think that, you know, we, we dress up and come, and it's great to dress up and come to church. We minimize our sins. Um, we get our apparent uh, behavior under control first. And, but that's one of the reasons we like stuff like what John and Hillary did here. In the beginning, I, I almost always open up with, hey, we're a bunch of sinners in need of a savior. His name is Jesus. Come as you are. We have to militate against that kind of mentality that says that, um, just, let me just clean up real quick. No, like, that's one of the reasons that you hear in the church, belong first. It's one of the reasons I said at the beginning, you are welcome here. But you belong here. Christ has done all necessary for you to be in perfect standing with God. You belong. And hopefully, as you're part of this family and as you are loved on and as you get to ask questions in a safe space and search out what is true, you will come to believe. That's between you and God. And we wanna help you get there as much as possible. And we don't want you to believe anything that's not true, but belong first, then believe. Um, but we don't get our stuff together first and then come to God. That's not the way it works. We don't bring God anything of worth. So one great example, I think, is the Gerasene demoniac. Um, the Gadarene demoniac, two words for where he was, but he's one of the most ferocious characters in the Gospels, man. It's one of my favorite 
true stories about Jesus' encounter with someone. And he, he gets, he's on the Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel. And Jesus gets off the boat. And you can tell from the details of the text that he is, he's got an appointment, Jesus does, with this man. He basically just goes over, takes a trip, and the disciples are like, why? And when he gets there, it's clearly for this man. This man comes howling, raging, and screeching down from the hills from the tombs where he lives, where he's been chained up by those that are in the city miles away. Because that's the only place that they can keep him out by the tombs because he's a rager. He cuts himself, he screams, he, he pulls off all of his clothes no matter how many times they try to dress him. And he's full of demons. Jesus says, what is your name? And the demons inside say, we are legion, which means we are thousands. This guy is infested with demons. And he bows unwillingly, as it were, in front of Jesus and says, don't destroy us. Don't send us back to the pit before our time. They are frightened of Jesus. And they're more frightened of having him send them back home because Satan is no, no taskmaster that you, they, even the demons want to be with. Don't send us back to that place. Um, and I just love the story because Jesus doesn't, he was a hot mess when he came to Jesus. You can't get more hot mess than this guy. And Jesus does not say, look, 12 steps. And then, you know, he doesn't. He casts the demons out of the man. And then the next thing it says, the man, they found the city, the city guys came, uh, the, the shepherds ran to the city. People came out of the city. They told him, here's what happened. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. What is happening? This power has come. And they come, a few representatives come from the city. Maybe the whole city comes out and they see this man. It says, seated in his right mind. You know, hair combed, little pocket square, blazer, sitting there at the feet of Jesus, right where we all belong, right? For he who is forgiven much loves much. And the guy just is begging, and they're like, please get out of here. I don't know, you are a power that we don't wanna deal with. Get out of here, Jesus. And they send him away. But what is the man? His, op- his response is opposite. Let me go with you. He tries to get in the boat. You know, just anywhere you are, that's where I wanna be. Can I say this is our only safe space. This is our best place. Wherever you are, Jesus, I want to be there. And what does Jesus do? What does he say? He says, no, you go and tell everyone how much God has done for you. And there's evidence that he did that because there's evidence that later that a lot of that area came, uh, believed on Christ as Lord and Savior. And so the man, no doubt, did, told his story. Um, for he who is forgiven much loves much. We, we can't clean ourselves up. Um, we can't bring God anything, of course, and that's wonderfully good news. So if you look at, again, the torso of this text, it's just I, 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 first person pronoun all the way down. I'll just read a few of them, but it's all the I is God. I have not lived in it. Would you build me a house? Verse six, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all my people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? I commanded my people... Um, I commanded to shepherd my people uh, down in verse nine. And I have been with you wherever you have been and I've cut off all your enemies and I will make for you a great name. I who took you from the sheepfold, right? Like the great ones of the earth. Verse 10, and I will appoint a place for the people of Israel and will plant them. And on and on it goes. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Will you build me a house, David? No, I'm going to secure and you shows up at the end. I'm gonna secure you and I will do all this for you, not because of you, but because of me, because I've set my love upon you. Um, and this theme shoots through, it shoots through scripture. Adam and Eve, 
what do they do when they sin, when they fall? They clothe themselves with a fig leaf, you know, and uh, pretty flimsy. And they're trying to cover over their shame and their nakedness because they've been filled with sin now because they've rebelled from God. And what, what happens? God says, "Not no, that's not gonna do. I've gotta clothe you. And so he kills an animal, first sacrifice in the Bible, sheds blood, something innocent dies, and he covers them. It says that he clothes them himself, okay? That's just a tiny picture of the fact that we can't do it ourselves. We can't cover over our shame and nakedness. God does it for us, undeserved. Cain, their, their boy, he brings the work of his own hands. He brings this mysterious passage in Genesis 4. He works, works hard to produce fruit from the soil, and he brings um, this offering of, the, of his own labor and his own invention and his own ingenuity and his own labor to God, and God says, it's not the way it works, Cain. And what does Abel do? He brings, again, he brings, Abel, Cain's brother, brings something that's innocent, that he didn't gin up, that dies in his place so that Abel, the guilty, can remain before God, and that's a sacrifice that pleases God. Um, because we can't do anything through our own efforts to please God. Um, Babel, a few chapters later in Genesis 11, right before Abraham, what's their main mistake? They're trying to get up to God through their own efforts, and God, he just levels that, and he says, no, that's not the way it works. And the next chapter with Abraham, he calls Abraham out of nowhere through no good of Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you through no good of your own, and I'm gonna bless all the families of the earth through you. And I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna secure this blessing through a child I'm gonna give you that you can't gin up on your own. Because Abraham is 100 and Sarah, his wife, is 90. And they are past the point of being able to do anything about it. And that's just the way God works. Um, With Moses, he waits until Moses, God waits until Moses isn't 40 where he thinks he's strong, he's been educated in the Harvard of the South or the Middle East and Egypt and he thinks now's the time I'm gonna release the people of God and lead, lead them out of slavery. No, he's cast him out into the desert and waits till he's old and dried up and can't contribute anything. He has a stuttering problem and he has a serious confidence problem. And he's been pushing sheep around for 40 years. Now you're ready, Moses, because now you realize you can't do anything. And God, with a mighty hand, delivers his people through no good of their own, his grace. And David, same thing. So we get to David, same exact thing. David, man, when I took you, you were, you were nothing. And the fact is, it's the same. Nothing has changed. Um, keep understanding, David, no matter how high and mighty and powerful you get, no matter how many resources you have, keep understanding that you can't bring me anything of, of, of your own effort that pleases me. I come and I do it all and I bless you through my own grace and through my own love. There's, there's one passage in particular that I love that encapsulates this truth, Exodus 14. So, as God is leading his people out of Egypt, right before they hit the Red Sea, he purposefully traps them between Pharaoh and the Red Sea. He's like, God's like, perfect, right where I want you. So they realize there's nothing they can do. Have you brought us here to die? And what, is, what does God say to Moses and then Moses to the people? And Moses said to the people, Exodus 14, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you this day. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you, only have to, and you have only to be silent. This is a great picture of just the economy of God. He comes down and he does all for us in matters of salvation. Okay, maybe one more, one more verse. Psalm 46, verse 10 says this. I, I love this verse. Be still. This is God speaking to us. Be still 
and know that I am God. I will be exalted among all the nations and I will be exalted in all the earth. It is for us to be still and to watch God in his salvation do everything through the person of Christ. Um, God tells this to his people over and over and over again, Israel, that he chooses. He said, I didn't pick you because you were the biggest or the strongest. I picked you for the opposite because you were the smallest and the weakest that I might show my glory and show this is how I save through nothing we can do. Um, Paul expands on this in 1 Corinthians. He says, 1 Corinthians 1.26, for consider your calling, brothers. He's talking to us, the church, those who have looked to God through Christ to save us. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We give more glory to God when we are able to say, hey, it's not because I scrubbed up. It's not because of my awesome resume. It's not because of a huge check I wrote. Never is it because of that. Rather, it's because of how, you know why God picked me? Pretty sure it's because of how unappealing I was, because of how small, because of how much I lacked. And God loves that. He loves to lavish upon those, what? Who receive, who receive. This is the order of his kingdom. Um, God, third point, God gives all. God gives all. Jack Miller, um, he, said, he said something to the effect of take heart. I've said it many times from this pulpit. Take heart, friend. This is something that he loved to tell people. Take heart, friend. You are far worse than you ever imagined and far more loved at the same time. And that's what the gospel is. That's what, and the gospel doesn't start when Jesus comes on the scene. The gospel starts from the very second we fall with our first parents in the garden and he clothes them through no good of their own by sacrificing something innocent, which takes them, which points straight ahead to the one who would come and actually take care of sins for us. Because God's salvation doesn't work like the world's. When it, when it comes, when we come to God, we come, we come in poverty with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Our problem, and I'll get to this as I close in a few minutes, our problem is that we come like we come, we come to God like we come in every other area of life as adults wanting to give something of worth. And that comes later after, after he's given us all through no good of our own, but we need to come as kids. Kids have no problem receiving. Kids have no problem asking. My kids are asking for stuff from me all the time. And in that sense, that's what God's saying. He's saying, you can't bring me anything. You just get in the way when you try to make things right between me and you. I've done everything necessary in the person of Jesus Christ for you. Receive that receive that. Um, you are far worse than you ever imagined. That's one thing the cross tells us. What Jesus took on the cross is what I deserve. That's how evil, Jesus said it. You who are evil love your children. Does not the Father love you much more, he who is good? We are evil, and yet he came, and as we sang earlier, he died for us as we were nailing him to the cross and spoke a blessing over us. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. To think, so we don't, we don't just, we, not only can we not bring him anything when it comes to matters of salvation, what we bring him is nailing him to the cross. He came and did everything for us. 
And, you, and then the other thing the cross tells us, aside, in addition to how this is, this is how Christ hanging on the cross, this is how much of a problem it was for us to be with God in peace. It also tells us how deeply loved we are. This is the links. This is, you wanna know the heart of God for you, Old Testament and New, the only one, one God that there is, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The heart of God for you is Christ hanging on a cross. This was God the Father's idea that he put into execution that Christ actually did, and that the Holy Spirit takes as we believe and puts into us on our hearts, the spirit of the living God in Christ and makes us new. You are far worse than you ever imagined. Take heart and far more loved. It's, the, it's what we've been searching for all our lives because all our lives, you know, Lewis and Mere Christianity, which I'm reading with some friends right now, he says, that's the problem of every person and civilization, a bunch of people throughout history, is that we constantly go and seek out other things to fill us, but we're only made for one thing, God himself. And so because of our sin nature, we make gods, idols, out of anything else in life, a job, a person, whatever it is, someone's esteem, my performance, I don't know. And, uh, it, and eventually, Lewis says, whether it's a person or a whole civilization, that idolatry means that the machine conks, is the word he uses. It just breaks down. It's a piston stop firing. Kink. Because we can't run on that gas. As I said before, the only gas we're made to run on is the gas of God. And so Christ came down and, and, and laid his life down for us um, so that we could be fully known, what we all live for. I wanna be fully known, but I'm scared of that because if I'm fully known, then I'm not gonna be loved because of all the stuff inside. But the gospel in Christ is that I am fully known and fully loved. Jesus was stripped naked, exposed, and became our sin so that we could have his righteousness and be clothed with it. That, that's, that's the good news, that, that actually God is preaching a thousand years beforehand to David that will happen through David that is manifest in Jesus Christ. So as I, as I close down, let me just, let me just hit one point um, with us that's in the text here. I said earlier, I think, that um, since the fall, maybe I didn't say it, our fundamental problem has been that we, I mean, the minute Adam and Eve sinned, they were filled with shame and hid from each other and hid from God. Tried to cover themselves up, hid from God. And, that, and, and nothing has changed. Uh, we wanna be, we desperately wanna be known, but, but we also don't wanna be known because if we're known, then we won't be loved. We'll be rejected, right? Um, the thing that we've, the syndrome that's happened since the fall, the thing that we have wanted since the fall, um, uh, afraid of being known and also loved, um, this text, actually, if you see some of the undercurrents and the words and phrases in it, takes us back to that fall. I don't have time to go through all, all of the, the details in it, but I'll just give you a couple. Verses one and 11 form like a frame around the text. Um, it, it says that uh, David had gotten, gave, God had given David rest from all his surrounding enemies. And then verse 11, God says, I will give you rest from all of your surrounding enemies. Um, and one of the things that that takes us back to with all the other garden words and phrases going through this covenant chapter where God makes this covenant with David, um, this promise to him, is it takes us back to Genesis 3.15. Right, right in the center of, of the fall, um, God uh, makes this promise to, to Adam and Eve and to their posterity. 
Um, and then, again, I'll get to that in just a second, Genesis 3.15. But if you look at verse 12, um, he makes the promise to David that the promise that he's gonna fulfill where he's going to establish David's name and he's gonna basically work the, re, um, the reconstitution of the universe. He's gonna take away the effects of the fall through David's heir and his throne will never end. And he's talking about Jesus. He says, I'm gonna do it through your seed or offspring. So that word seed and that word enemy, those both take us back to Genesis 3.15. And that is the first mention of the gospel, right in the middle of the curse where God says, Eve, because you've done this, You'll be cursed in childbearing. It'll be painful for you. Adam, you'll be cursed in, in work. All your toil is gonna be work and hard and painful. Your whole lives are gonna be painful and all creation is gonna crack because you were given charge over it and you've rebelled against me. But in the middle of that, he comes to the promise and he says, I will put enmity, the word there is enemies, I'll make enemies, between you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent, Satan, and between your offspring, there's that word seed, and her offspring, seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what, what is that? What is that? God is, he's saying that one day, thousands of year for no, years from now, there's going to be someone who will come. And he tells us here in 2 Samuel 7 that that one who's gonna come is gonna come through David. Okay, and that one who's gonna come, he's going to crush the power and the vitality and the life, the head of Satan and all that he's done to creation through humanity all his deception. He's gonna, he's gonna finish it once and for all. But through that victory, as, as that man, that son from the woman steps on the head of the serpent and crushes his head, that serpent is gonna hit his heel and bite. That's where snakes bite, right? When you, the very instrument of the snake's demise, the heel, where the snake's head is crushed, is gonna be bitten. So what we find a thousand years after David is that this son his great victory, the way that he's going to establish his reign over all things and begin to make all things new is that the very place where he's gonna be victorious, where he crushes the head of the serpent is the very place where he is struck. And what is that place? That place is the cross. That place is the cross. In him, David's greater son, Jesus, is going to absorb not only all of our sins who would believe on him and who will believe on him, you, you are taking on that cross, Jesus, what I deserve, what stood between me and the Father, okay? But also all of the brokenness of creation, he's going to incarnate on that cross and endure and he's going to bury it. And then when he rises three days later, he is going to rise. Paul calls him later in Romans, a book to the church in, in Rome, Paul calls uh, Jesus later the second Adam. What is that word Adam? It's a Hebrew word, which just means man. So what is Paul saying? He's saying when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose as the second man in all of history. The first man was Adam. And the second man, all the rest of us have just been shadows, broken by sin. Jesus rose the second man of a whole new creation that would be reconstituted through his payment for the brokenness of creation on the cross. And he buried it and he rose to a new type of life. And we, when we trust in him, our sins are taken care of. His righteousness and his heart to the Father, to obey the Father from the heart is given to us. And also we begin to walk, here's the thing, I wanna emphasize this more and more, and I'm almost done here. We get to walk in a creation that has begun the minute Jesus rose from the dead, 
It's, a new, it's part of a new humanity, okay, untouched by sin that will never end. And the kingdom will go on forever and ever and ever. Though we die, Christ will return one day as the king to come and to stay here and to reign. And we will be given new bodies who trust in him. And we will reign and we will rule and we will explore and we will plant and we will work and we will feast together. This is what God is saying. So let me, that's a bunch of high theology from this text. Um, yes, this text is talking a little bit about Solomon, but ultimately his reign doesn't last forever. Through Solomon, through David, we have a greater king and his name is Jesus, who didn't sin. This text says, when he sins, I will punish him, but was treated as if he did sin because it was a vicarious death. He died for us in our place and then rose for us to a new type of creation. So let me, let me just talk about two things and then we're done. Two ways this might play out that you can walk out here and Monday morning you can feel like, okay, that was a bunch of stuff about a covenant with David given to him, fulfilled in Christ, but how does that affect my Monday morning? How does that affect my week? Let me give you a couple, a couple ways, just two ways. One, Michael Jordan. So I was just reading actually this morning an article in the Gospel Coalition about, it was a, a reprinted article that was written uh, on his 50th birthday, which is five years ago. He's now 55, so they just republished it. And it's about how Michael, basically, he's had the opportunity to be, remem- to be known and remembered and revered. He's the most important. Most of us don't even have hopes of being remembered more than a few years after we die. Maybe, maybe even a second after. I mean, my family will mourn for a little bit, hopefully, but then you know, the next generation, and certainly the one after that, and 100 years later, not, they're not gonna know my name or, or yours. So if that's it, then what are we living for? Michael has had the rare opportunity of, of being known, of being on the side of buildings, of being praised and lauded, and of being the most important person in the room for the past 30 years. And that has done a number on his ego. But here's the point. And so he's like, man, I'm looking for peace. I'm looking for the peace I had in basketball. That wasn't peace. That was a false God, Michael. You need to turn to the true God. It doesn't satisfy. But the point is, he's, he's been able to deceive himself more into thinking that maybe I can make a name for myself. But we hopefully are a little less easily deceived because we're not as big of a deal. You know, I'm not ever gonna be on the side of a building, I don't think. Um, and so, and so what, but what we try to do throughout our lives is sort of like Michael. We, we try, I mean, if we're thinking, feeling beings at all, we want to live for something that lasts and matters. And that's where a lot of our idolatry comes from and a lot of our running after things and expending energy. We are made for that because death is an intruder. We are made to last. But what Jesus' resurrection does for us is it says to us, relax. If you are in Christ, a new creation has started And because of him, if you are resting in him and not in your own work, his work is finished for you. Proof of it is that he rose from the dead and is alive today and is reigning through you. Everything you do matters now if you are in Christ. If you are outside of Christ, I hate to say it, but it's true and I love you and so I'm gonna say it. If you are outside of Christ, nothing that you do now. Now God will use some of the things, but for your own person, nothing that you do now will last and will matter. Christ is the ultimate dividing line. And if we are in him, because of his resurrection, everything we do in Christ matters. Spreadsheets, do them to the glory of God. Eating pizza, do it to the glory of God. You know, time with your spouse, um, serving the poor. Whatever it is, do it all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink, 
So that's the first thing. And one more, and then I'm done. The first thing is, think Michael Jordan. In Christ, because of his resurrection, through nothing good that you've done, but because of what is he, he has done, receive it like kids. Kids are our model in this. Be, we're not called to be adults in the kingdom. We're called to be kids forever. Receive the work of Christ Jesus and know that in him, by faith in him, you've been made right with God and what you do throughout your working week with your spouse, with strangers, with your neighbors, at work, it matters. It matters. You're planting seeds now that Christ will take in the new creation and grow up, okay? The second thing and the last thing is that I just wanna say, and it's been said in the testimony and in the songs even, but especially in the testimony, we are such competent people. And this world teaches us, and our rat race teaches us, and, and keeping, keeping paying the mortgage and this and that and the other, all our responsibilities teach us to be omnicompetent, right? But um, one of the things that Jesus walks us into increasingly, hopefully, is, again, relax on a, on a more personal, less kingdom, but more personal relational level. I want you to relax. So if you're trying to remember the two things tomorrow, relax and relax. <laughs> Michael Jordan and, and how you work and what you do, it matters. And if you're outside of Christ, it doesn't. But secondly, relationally, I can in Christ alone be fully known and fully loved. Okay? That should translate into the way we treat each other. Here, in our neighborhoods, at work, I, w- I want to be known as someone that is, f- I'm free The sins that I do don't define me. Christ and his righteousness define me. And he has freed me to be able to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm not defined by that. He sees me as a saint, but I sin. And in fact, if I say I have no sin, I'm not in him at all. But I have an advocate before the Father now who has paid for all of my sins and who has given me his righteousness. So I'm free to just bring that to the community and say, I'm having a real tough time here. I just fell here. I'm struggling against this thing. This is dogging me. And and I need y'all. I made to be with y'all. I can't do it alone. We are not made to do it alone. Um, but our, our society kind of teaches us the opposite and our pride gets in the way, right? And our fear, we don't need to fear. Let that fear go because of what Christ has done. Let's be a people who know that we are fully, take heart, you are far more, you are far worse off. <laughs> You're far more evil and far more loved than you dared hope or imagine. In Christ, you're welcome, garrison demoniac, as you are. You can't bring anything. You have, we are all in the poorhouse when it comes to God. He is pleased, little children, to lavish his grace and mercy and strength and beauty upon you in the person of Jesus Christ. If we can live there more in that place, never graduating from that place. Okay, that's the ABCs. Now, what are the FG, what are the, you know, what are the other letters? The YZs. No, that's it. We can live there, abiding in Christ and what He's done for us and who He is. Then we'll have progressed a little bit together, being fully known, being being fully loved. And man, let me tell you, there's so much more here, and I'm just not going to say any of it. When, when, uh, when people see that kind of community, that kind of realness, that kind of uh, security, a, a, a humility. We can't be proud. I can't be proud about the fact that I, God's chosen me. It's probably just because I'm the least worthy and the least impressive because he wants to show off his glory. It's all of him and not of me. 
can I build you a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. And the way I work, I'm going to come all the way down and die for you and live for you and rise for you. Humble people, but confident. Confident, not in our own doing, but in Christ. When people see that, man, it's, it's, a, it's either it repels them because, I don't know, for whatever reason, or they're attracted to it. And people will be saved. People will come to Christ as we live more and more imperfectly these kind of lives, right? So let's do it together um, all through the grace of God. Let me, let me pray. Father, thank you for that bumpy ride. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you that it's not about performance, whether we're preaching or whatever we're doing, Lord. That's not what defines us. The person of Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior, who became sin for us and rose as the second man in all creation, that is what defines us if we are in Christ. Lord, help us to just leave our own merit at the door and come, come as we are, and believe on you. Um, We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.